0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 15th chapter, the 21st and 28th verse. Jesus is now, it says, Jesus is now leaving Gennesaret. This is where in the Gospels it kind of signifies the end of the Galilean ministry. That what Jesus has had to share with the people of Galilee, with his home area, he has has shared, and those who have taken it and those who have not have not. We know that it's a very that Galilee was considered to be a um, a mixed society, not all Jewish, but partially also Gentile. We know that there have been problems. Jesus has experienced problems in Galilee with uh, rejection because of familiarity with who he was, and uh, with rejections because. of of ethnic difficulties within the province. But now he's on his way, and he is in the district of region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile region. He is, uh, he's moving southward from Galilee now, and he and his disciples, and there's another thing that's going on too, when he leaves Galilee, when he leaves the Galilean ministry, there tends to be now a going away from the large crowds, a going away from the, uh, the proclamations and to uh, in the towns and the villages and so forth. And he's tending to skirt them and taking the Twelve with him. It's almost like an intense novitiate, actually, for the Twelve, because now his focus is on them that he realizes that the time is passing quickly, preaching to the multitude somehow or other has now prepared a base for the apostles, but that they themselves must become to conform more to, to his way of life and to absorb more of his teaching and more of his counsel and more of his wisdom. And so we find then kind of an almost a preparatory period, not that he is certainly not that other people don't come in and out of the Gospels at this stage, but generally speaking he's with the Twelve from now on when these things happen, because they are have become kind of an identifiable group now, and he is intent on instructing them and forming them into the disciples the apostles that he knows they have to be to effectively carry out the mission his mission in the world and we know also from john's gospel that he is preparing to give his mission to them when in john's gospel he says to them as the father has sent me i send you And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is now an intense period, and we're going to find in the Gospels an ongoing uh, insight into the relationship between the disciples among themselves and the disciples with the Lord. Usually there's some dominant figures within the apostolic community who surface, but every once in a while we catch glimpses of the others as well. But what happens now is that as he enters into Tyre and Sidon, into what the Gospel calls Canaanite territory, Matthew calls it Canaanite, Mark calls it Syrophenicia. the fact is that there were two groups of Phoenicians, one in, around Tyre and Sidon in Palestine, and another group in, in Carthage in, in northern Africa. And uh, the Hebrews made the distinction by referring to the ones in Palestine as Canaanite. And so a woman, a Canaanite or Syro-Phoenician woman, a Gentile woman, from the district started shouting, sir, son of David, have pity on me. My daughter is tormented by a devil. Even now, his reputation has spread into Gentile territory. And there is a woman who has a daughter who is possessed. And she approaches Jesus, calling him sir, But acknowledge him as son of David, so acknowledging him also as Jewish and as a significant member of the Jewish race. And yet she herself is coming to him for a favor, saying, take pity on me, my daughter is possessed or tormented, she said. But he answered her not a word. He didn't even respond to her. And this, interestingly, if we we keep this in mind, this is the time of instructing the disciples. That's his main focus. This woman enters into it, and so he's going to use the opportunity to teach the disciples something. And his disciples, when pleaded with him, give her whatever she wants because she's shouting after us and bothering us. And so they come up with a practical solution to the woman's situation. Jesus has every intent of healing the daughter, but he also has to have the apostles learn something from the process. This is not just another healing. And so he says to them, as they are well aware, being of the elect, I was sent only to this lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so this is what they think that the Messiah is coming only for them. This is what Israel is tending to think the Messiah is just coming for us. But the woman had come up and was kneeling at his feet. Lord, she said, help me. And he replied, and this again is for the apostles' benefit, so that they can see the non-viability of this exclusive relationship between Israel and the Lord. But she says, help me, and then Jesus says, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And here is something that really kind of is distressing for us. First of all, the apostles are hearing him refer to the Gentiles as dogs, which is common among the Jews in Palestine at this time. But he softens it a bit, and this particular translation says house dog, but really means a whelp, uh, which we call a puppy, which is an awful lot less offensive to say, you know, throw it to the puppies. Um, there's kind of a gentleness in that that isn't quite as harsh as saying just throw it to the dogs. And so she retorts, but then she comes back cleverly. She says, ah, but sir... Even puppies can eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. This brings up a whole other point of the gospel, and a very significant and important point of the gospel, that she acknowledges the primacy of Israel. She acknowledges that. She calls that, she calls what Israel has, the table. And that what she's asking for are the scraps. She, she realizes, she understands the relationship between the Messiah, Israel, and then the Gentile world. And basically, this takes us back then, this very, this very insight takes us back to the gospel pertaining to the mustard seed and the gospel pertaining to the yeast. And we saw at that time that it was talking about kind of the seedbed of the faith in the world, that first Israel had to be converted in order for the chosen people to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And then the disciples have to be prepared in order that they might become the leaven in the secular world, in the civil world, to bring about the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. And so there is, it starts out with a kernel. It starts out with a core, with yeast or mustard seed or whatever the Lord wants to call it. First of all, that comes to Israel, then they become the yeast. And now Jesus is coming to take that yeast and to knead it into the bushel of flour. He is now coming to take it and to bring it into the wider world in order that it may therefore raise up the presence of God in the modern world. And who are the ones who are going to be the active ministers of that? It's going to be the apostles. So they have to become now the yeast that brings forth the fullness of the message of Jesus Christ into the modern world. And so we have gone from from the mustard seed of Israel to the coming of the Messiah to the mustard seed of the, of the primitive apostolic church into the worldwide church of, of Catholicism, into the worldwide church where the presence of Jesus Christ is made present to all people. And so that's what this woman is saying. I realize that, that Israel got the whole thing, but now I should be able to have just a little of that, even though I'm not of Israel. But Jesus then turns to her and he says, woman, you have great faith. And so he said, you you realize it. You understand it. You have it. So let your wish be granted. And from that moment, her daughter was well again. Interesting how Jesus cleverly uses this situation not only to extract a statement of faith from the Syrophoenician woman, but also to teach the disciples something about their, their isolation, something about their singularity, something about the necessity that they have for extending themselves beyond that which they are accustomed to, beyond that which they're used to, so that they might become more effective in the world once he has died and risen, and leaves behind his incarnate presence in sacrament within the church but sends the preaching forth in the mouths of the apostles and those whom the apostles are to attract to their ministry as the years, the century, the millennia go on. So we have here basically a transitional gospel, a gospel in which what we're talking about is the spreading, the growing of the the organic growth of the kingdom of heaven. The organic growth of the proclamation of the catechesis, the proclamation of the kingdom of God in a way that is going to be acceptable, in a way that's going to be received in the world. And the role we see here also, the role that Israel plays in that. And this becomes something I think very important for our own lives, for this paradigm, this model of the church as a seed, um, nourished and grown by, by the kerygma, by the proclamation of the gospel by the words and the presence of Jesus Christ as it grows in every a- in every area, in every place. We find ourselves, for instance, in the modern world, sinking into a coming into a minority when we have enjoyed a majority status for a very long time. While we have been a powerful presence in the midst of the world, that power is being taken away from us. And we are becoming marginalized and rejected by the ideological thrust of contempt secular society. We find uh, even the Archbishop of San Francisco saying you know that the church is under attack and we find tremendous vandalism growing everywhere and we find kind of Christianity being labeled in the news media as the enemy. Their their greatest attempt is, well, you know, the Bible is hate speech, and the moral teachings of Christianity are hate speech, and hate crimes, and all of this kind of strange kind of thing, reminiscent, really, of the early days of Christianity, when we were anything but admired, and anything but uh, cared for, or cared after, or looked after, or respected, but to the point where, when Nero burns Rome in 64 AD, what he does, does is he burns down the Christian section because nobody's going to care about that. And uh, ultimately, very few people did. Tacitus said that it was, uh, it was an inhuman thing to do, but it was the Christians basically who, who were involved, and they were undesirables anyway. Um, he still condemned Nero for doing it, but it was certainly much less of a tragedy for him because the Christians were the ones who were who were burned, who were destroyed in the burning of the city. So basically then, what we have here is we have in a rather hostile world, now Jesus sees a spark of faith. And he takes that spark of faith and he uses it to instruct his disciples. He's saying to them, look, you as Jews are looking at the Gentiles and it's popular It's popular spe- patterns of speech to refer to them as dogs. Look what it sounds like and see what it looks like. When you take someone who's suffering and someone who is in great need and someone who is trying to be benevolent and trying to acknowledge the, the reality of, of the world in which they live and to call them dogs, he softens it. As we said, he calls it whelps or puppies. But nevertheless, it sounds harsh, and he wants the apostles to see, even in his mitigated form, how harsh it really is. But then the woman comes back, and this is where faith blossoms in the wilderness, and says, but you know, even dogs, can eat the scraps that fall from the table. Even undesirables can gain something from the abundance that Israel possesses. The abundance of the possession of the law, the abundance of the possession of the prophets, the abundance of the opportunity to have a special relationship with the Creator God, all of that. Even Can even some of us get even scraps of that? And Jesus wants the apostles to see the hunger that there is, the hunger that there is for what he has given to his chosen people and what he is entrusting to them to give to other people as well. And so what happens then is he says, Woman, your great faith, you have great faith, let your wish be granted. Because by faith then he responds to the woman's needs because of her faith. And so it is also with our lives, and so it is also with the Church in the contemporary world. It's an important thing that the Church share her abundance, even those who are unworthy. And there are myriads of unworthies according to the norms of Christianity and the norms of the Old Testament, and yet they are real people they are children of God. They have great needs, a great inner yearning for something beyond themselves, something that is of necessity to them. And buried deep, even in the secularism of their world, there are oftentimes in the midst of crisis is some kind of desire for some kind of response to the good and the living God. I think that we see that as well. We can say to ourselves, fine. The secular world has rejected us, so let us reject the secular world. No. We walk into it. We walk into it with the tremendous gifts that we have been given. The gift of faith, sometimes we we underestimate that. Sometimes we don't really grasp or accept or desire to accept how tremendous a gift that is in our lives. It gives us meaning, it gives us purpose, it tells us who we are, it tells us what we can become, it tells us that we need not be alone in the midst of the cosmos, it tells us that there is someone who loves us at all times no matter what and who will be with us and and assist us in so many different ways. What a sense of security in life that gives. What about those who have no security? What about those who have nowhere to turn? What about those who are just always adrift, always unhinged, always seeking some kind of stability, some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose, grasping at that out of nothing and into nothing? What frustrates no wonder that secularism brings with it such anger. No wonder that it brings with it such violence because it is desperate. It is a society and a structure of society which is absolutely desperate and sees around anything around it that disagrees with it as a threat. I have constructed my house on sand. And I see everyone who comes and who does not affirm the wisdom of my building a house on sand as an enemy, as someone who seeks to hurt me, someone who seeks to destroy me. And I will fight to protect myself. And I will do so with great anger. And I will do so with great violence. And I will do whatever it is it takes for me to keep my paper world together. And when, in fact, it tears apart in the end, then this same kind of ideological society says, well, come, the benevolent thing to do now is to take your life. The reasonable thing now is to kill yourself. The reasonable thing now is to let us kill you in a most humane sort of way, in a most kind sort of way, by injecting you with some kind of fatal narcotic of some kind. And haven't we been merciful and haven't we been good? No. To be merciful and to good is to give them something to live for, not to take everything that they have, what little they have, away. And that's what the apostles are sent to do. And that's what Jesus is manifesting and and displaying for us and showing us in this particular gospel that even in the midst of hopelessness and darkness and desperation, he is kind. He offers something. He gives to all he asks for the woman. All he asks of her is to believe in him. That's all. And she shows that in the most humbling of ways. And then he gives her, with her small scrap, he instead gives her an abundance. And the abundance is exactly then the healing of her daughter, the liberating of her daughter from the clutch of the devils. I think if we pray on this, and reflect upon this, and think about this, we can see this parable working out, or this story working itself out all around us, in our lives. How many times even in family life, when someone does not deserve something, are we willing to be kind to them? How many times when people are seeking, questioning, asking, are we willing to share with them? How many times when people come to us and approach us, sometimes even in anger, are we willing to attempt to share with them a portion of what the Lord has given us? a portion of the understanding, a portion of the wisdom, a portion of the kindness, a portion of the patience, a portion of the goodness that the Lord has given to us through our faith, through our church, through the sacramental life of the church. How often are we willing to share that even with people hostile to the church? We should always be willing to do that. And oftentimes we hear people say, well, I've failed, I didn't defend my faith. Well, You know, does that mean you didn't get into an argument, or does it mean that maybe you corrected an error? There's a difference. No one that I know of has ever been convinced of Christianity through an argument. Arguments tend instead not to unify, but to polarize. And that the more you say in an argumentative way, the more negative does the response become against it and the less likely is there someone to be attracted to what you say. So how do we then offer what the Lord has offered to this this Gentile woman? We offer it by nurturing within us the mustard seed, nurturing within us the yeast nurturing within us that little bit of heaven that comes to us from the sacramental life of the church and that can be articulated us through the apostolic proclamation of the church these are the things that we can that we can use and these are the things that we have to share and in so doing and giving them away they grow larger and greater and deeper within ourselves. The more of this of Christ that we give away, that we possess, the more room there is within ourselves for him to increase as we decrease, as John the Baptist says. The whole idea is that we come forth and we participate somehow in the life of the divine, and that the more we empty ourselves of our constructed humanity, the more the real humanity is able to grow and to make room within itself for the source and the destiny of its own being. This is not a harsh gospel. This is a gospel that espouses kindness, and it shows the example of the Lord's kindness. And once again, here we have the scenario. He has preached to the peoples, the crowds in Galilee, Now he goes off with his own disciples. He's going to form them, shape them, teach them, guide them, help them to become who they have to become, to take the seed of faith and to plant it throughout the whole world. One of the first lessons they learn as he crosses the border is that they are not to reject those who are not of the house of Israel. And so this is one of the first proclamations of the right of the the Gentiles to receive the benefits of the presence of Christ, the benefits of the gospel. And so when the Syrophoenician woman comes, the apostles watch him. They get him, they hear him say, I've come first of all to the kingdom of Israel. But after they do that, then they see the faith that is inherent within within the needs of the people who are not of Israel and how in dire situations with no one to turn to, they turn to Jesus. And in turning to Jesus, they hear their prayers responded to. And then the apostles know that in the ages to come, when people have nowhere to turn, they can turn to the church, the apostolic community, and the apostolic community has an obligation then to respond to their needs, not just with the material needs of the scraps from our table, not just with food and so forth, but with the human heart and with the healing graces of the sacraments in order that those who are sorely afflicted in their life may find that kind of sense of peace and hope within themselves that brings out in them a desire for Jesus Christ, a desire for eternal life, and brings them then along the way among the company of the faithful, that we all together may enter with our own sinfulness and our own inadequacies, but nevertheless enter into the great and overwhelming kingdom of God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.